I think education is a critical component of it. You need to educate your employees on health and wellness and offer programs, as well as to let them know the impact of the costs associated with health insurance, because a lot of times they don't even have a clue or an idea on how much you're paying for their health insurance. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, Make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that, quite frankly, often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Diana Velozzi, who currently serves as the Chief Human Resource Officer for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. She has an extensive background in the HR space and has worked in both for-profit companies and nonprofits. There's a big difference in the work environment between the two, and I'll let her explain those differences. So uh, let's dive right in. Diana Veloza, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Adam. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. I like the energy that you're bringing today. Are you ready to have some fun? Yes, I am ready to get started. Oh, well, that is a beautiful thing. So just for you to know, we're going to start this conversation out with some rapid fire questions to give me as well as the audience a better opportunity to get to know you on a more personal level. Uh, from there, we're going to roll into you know, a little bit more about uh, who you are, your career trajectory, and then just more about what you can share with the audience that you've learned that's helped you to be in the position that you are today. So what do you say we get rolling? Sounds wonderful. Okay. So I'm a music guy and uh, I'd love to know from you, what was the first concert you ever went to? Oh boy. You probably will not know this group because this was back in my early days when I was young and The group was a Spanish Latino boy band. They were actually called Menudo. At the time, they were one of the hottest Latino boy bands, if not the hottest Latino boy bands that performed all over the world. Um, They actually traveled all over the world and sold over 20 million records. So that was my first concert, probably around the age of 15. So that was uh, Ricky Martin, right? And yes, Ricky Martin actually was part of that group. He became a member of the group later on, a couple of years later, because when the group members had to transition out of the group due to their age, Ricky Martin was recruited at the time to replace one of the members. So yes, that was another highlight of Ricky's career. Oh, I didn't know that he was an original member. See, I'm learning stuff with every day, every conversation. Thank you. <laughs> so was it a good concert? 
Oh, it was great. It was great. They were often compared to the Beatles, not for their music, but for their popularity. And if you ever get a chance to do a little research, you'll see why. Gotcha. All right. I'm looking forward to that. So tell me, Diana, tell me a habit that you have, good or bad. Um, I guess uh, probably a good one that I have is um, when I wake up every morning, I just give thanks for all my blessings. I also have a room temperature glass of water with freshly squeezed lemon juice. I just feel that it's a fresh start to the day, a refreshing drink, fresh mind, a new day. I try to get seven to eight hours of sleep as well as good habits, although that's difficult for me sometimes because I do like to go to bed late. Uh, yeah. So that I'm might like, be a bad habit. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is. Do you have any technology that you couldn't live without? Yes. A GPS navigation system. Oh, yeah, me neither. I, I'd be lost. Because no I'm so bad. Yeah, I'm so bad with directions. I can follow directions well, but for some reason, I'm not good with driving directions. Never was. I'm lucky that I didn't get a car till later in my adult years when they discovered the electronic navigation system. But I remember when I was younger, my dad or uncle would always look at a map. They didn't have the navigation system back in those days. And um, I always looked at them and they had this big, big map looking on how to get to places on road trips. I can't imagine that now. And uh, hey, Waze is a great application, by the way. So that's what I use nowadays. I'm with you. It's also a lot harder to read a map nowadays because you, there's no room for error on the, on the roads. There's so much traffic. And assistants are extremely helpful, but they could also get you lost. So you do have to have some sense of direction at some point. Yes. Yeah. So... I'd love to learn more about you and your background, Diana. Share with us kind of who you are and what you're doing these days. And then from there, I'm going to want to go into a couple more questions. I'll get a little more granular on your background and some of the things that you're doing. Sure, sure. Thank you. So I'm a human resources professional with over 25 years of generalist experience doing what I love to do, and that's partnering with management and employees ensured that the business is offering the HR programs and best practices that are essential to run a successful organization. Human resources is my passion. It is what I love to do. I live, I breathe it, and that's probably why I have excelled in my career. It's just something that I really look forward to each day. I consider myself a humble and honest person, quite honestly. I really enjoy working with people and helping them reach resolutions to complex issues. I value transparency, and I believe that you should not lead with fear, but rather with compassion and integrity. It's important to get to know your employees and understand their work styles, experiences, strengths, and weaknesses, but you also need to acknowledge your own and build upon them. If you fail to know what your weaknesses are and you don't improve or build upon that, that could hold you back as well as how could you provide input to your team well everyone has weaknesses and obviously everyone also has strengths. So it's good to be able to give both the positive and the negative feedback and see uh, criticism as a good thing. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You talked about your level of humility and you displayed it coming right out of the gate. You defined yourself as a generalist, which you are, but you're also the uh, chief human resource officer, correct? Yes. I'm currently the chief human resource officer at the Diocese of Brooklyn, which is a large nonprofit religious organization. Now, if you don't mind, educate everyone else that's listening, or maybe not everyone who was as ignorant as I was when we first spoke. I thought that this was just this minor, small little diocese, when in fact it turns out to be significantly larger than what I had originally assumed. Yeah, and I quite didn't realize how large it was until I got there. 
<laughs> so uh, the diocese oversees uh, 180 parishes, 210 churches, and 76 Catholic schools and academies. At the diocese, I lead the various human resources functions and work closely with our religious and management leaders to ensure that all HR practices, programs, policies, and procedures are in line with best practices, and that also meets the needs of the organization. I have a staff of nine employees who are responsible for different areas in human resources, but we also support and provide HR services for a workforce of over 4,500 employees, Mm -hmm. which are spread across the parishes, churches, schools, and academies, along with the main offices of the diocese. It is a decentralized organization, although we do have several centralized HR programs that we administered and provide support for. Yeah. So not even close to small. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, <It's> complex. <laughs> so with all the complexities and the size, what's the biggest overall challenge that you deal with on a day-to-day basis? There's so many challenges and, uh, you know, that you deal with on a day-to-day basis being in human resources. But I would say the biggest challenges due to the complexity of the organization as far as the uh, different entities operating individually is that our job is to counsel and advise these entities and we provide, try to provide the best service that we can and educate them on all the compliance areas in human resources. When you're talking to a religious clergy, you know, their main focus is religion and a lot of them are not business operations um, oriented. So you have to educate them about the reasons why they need to do certain things or they need to follow certain policies and protocols. And that takes a lot of relationship building with Mm. those individuals, which can get quite challenging at times. Mm. (laughs) And it takes a couple of shots before uh, they fully understand the reason behind our recommendations and solutions. So how do you go about building those relationships? What is it that you do to establish rapport with some of these individuals which I'm assuming you're having to establish the rapport before being able to get them to change their mind in some capacity. Yeah, you have to connect with them. I do attend meetings and conferences uh, where they're all uh, together and there's various topic agendas covered, but Human Resources is invited to participate in those meetings. So that's my opportunity to present an important issue or practice uh, to them during that time. But I also reach out personally They like to connect on a uh, personal level, on a phone. Um, Email is good, but they prefer to talk to someone on the phone. So I do a lot of connections individually with those individuals and establish the relationship. Once they know that you're there to help them and explain the reason why you're there to help them and why this needs to be done this way, they really appreciate that because a lot of times it's just a lack of the knowledge on why we're doing this. And sometimes it doesn't work on the first try, but after two or three, it does. And then you'd be surprised because then they're calling you for advice. So they're actually reaching back to you as opposed to you reaching out to them. It's a long process. We have a lot of religious clergy in our organization, but I'm slowly building those relationships as we go along. I love to hear that. So what made you make the transition? Because you're historically... You were for-profit, right? Your entire career has been for-profit. What made you decide to go nonprofit? Yeah, I actually started as a temporary secretary of an organization that provided manufactured medical technology equipment and tools 
But I graduated when there was a recession. So the jobs are very limited and much less in human resources without experience. So I wanted to get my feet wet and get some experience. I started in a for-profit as an HR temporary secretary, assisting the director and the vice president of human resources. From there, I did transition to full-time positions in the for-profit sectors, both in advertising and then in manufacturing. I fell into the nonprofit sector by chance when I had reached a point where I felt that I needed more growth and I was ready to move on. And after I obtained my master's degree in HR, I decided to explore different opportunities. And I interviewed at a nonprofit called Transitional Services for New York, which is a community-based mental health organization that helps those recovering from mental illness. I was hired for the position because a lot of the skills were transferable in HR. And my educational background was in psychology and human resources. So I was able to combine, and it was a good blend for the type of work that they were doing in the mental health area. And there I led all of their HR functions for eight years. It was a big transition because the mission is so different than what you're used to. Being a for-profit, the focus is on sales, productions, revenue. In a nonprofit, such as Transitional Services for New York, the mission was to help people recovering from different types of mental illnesses, recruiting for a different type of workforce. You have different programs in place. You also have a lot of budgetary constraints because they're funded by city and federal grants, government grants, and that sometimes means you have to do the best that you can with the resources that you have. Tell me more about that. Well, there's not enough money to accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do. Honestly, that's really, and quite honest, that it is what it is. You get a certain budget, you get a certain dollar amount, and this is what you have to spend for the year. And when you're looking at recruitment, talent management, there's a lot of time and money spent in that area to attract the talent that you want to bring there to provide the services. So that's tough also because the wages are low in the social services field. So how do you recruit talented, dedicated, motivated employees low salaries. In the nonprofit world, that means a great benefits package a lot of times. And that's how you balance it out. You can't provide high salaries, but you look at what you can offer as far as benefits. And um, obviously, the work that they do, if it's their passion, that's, you know, another factor. Yeah, I would think that's just so much more challenging these days, especially when you're dealing in a nonprofit. And the odds are, the CPI and health benefits are costing more every year than what is coming in. I'm, so is that a big challenge that you face? And if so, what do you do to get more budget money? Yeah, it is a huge challenge. I think for everyone nowadays with healthcare expenses, it's tough because in nonprofit world, employees are traditionally used to either not paying anything towards their health contributions uh, or very minimal, even for family plans. That seems to be changing a lot. And uh, we're asking employees to contribute more and more each year because that all really is based on the claims incurred. So unfortunately, you know, we don't have so much of a healthy uh, population in New York. And a lot of those issues that employees have with health impact the uh, claims. And then that in turn means that health insurance also got to make their profits. And that's they increase the premiums and then the cost and the shift to the employer is, okay, so now the employer has to find the monies to be able to fund that or ask employees to contribute more. I think education is a critical component of it. You need to educate your employees on health and wellness and offer programs 
as well as to let them know the impact of the costs associated with health insurance, because a lot of times they don't even have a clue or an idea on how much you're paying for their health insurance. When you tell them that, they actually get quite shocked and surprised at the amounts that companies are paying nowadays for health coverage. Oh, it's astronomical. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're getting back, what are things for those that are listening that are thinking about making the transition similar to what you've done? What should they be thinking about? What should they be evaluating? What are the pros? What are the cons? Obviously, what we talked about the cons being limited budget, but uh, outside of that, what are some of the other things that they should be considering? Someone that wants to transition from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world, and I have recruited individuals who have made those decisions, a lot of it comes from within themselves wanting to make this change. And it probably has to do a lot with their values. They want to work for an organization where they're going to have an impact and feel that impact and the true value of their work when they get home that day. Um, and in nonprofit, it, that's the perfect world to apply that to because nonprofit work is very rewarding. It's hard work, but at the end of the day, when you come home, you know that you have made an impact in someone else's life. So that is critical and key. If you want to make lots of money, I don't say that's not possible in a nonprofit, but it is limited, as I mentioned, due to budgetary constraints. So money is not the motivating factor when you go into transition into a nonprofit environment. And you can see that as a con, but it depends where you are in your life. I've seen a lot of people make the transition, making uh, large amounts of money at very big organizations and taking a cut just because they got tired of that world and wanted to have uh, work in an organization and have impact and be able to be part of you know the organization's mission. That's what I would say. As far as skills, I mean, human resources, if you have experience, it's transferable. A lot of employers are now actually hiring people from the for-profit world because of their business acumen. So nonprofits are slowly and have evolved a whole lot in that area. So there's a lot of change management going on. There's a lot of data, there's metrics. A lot of the things that the for-profit world has already done is now being introduced or is already in place and transition in the nonprofit world. What do you feel has been the best skill set that you have acquired that's helped to lead you to your success? Discipline, a strong work ethic. The ability to multitask is crucial in HR. You're not just doing one or two things a day. You're doing... Honestly, I could say I've probably done about 100 things a day at one time. And how do you juggle all that? I think that's a skill. They say sometimes multitask is overrated because you're doing too much and how could you do it well? I think there is some truth to that. But you have to be able to jump at any time when a problem arises. You know, you get a phone call with a problem or issue and you could be working on a project. So you have to be able to juggle all that. You also have to have the ability to work through problems and offer ideas and solutions so understanding that some of those ideas and solutions may be turned down, and that's okay at times, but also to be open to other people's opinion and feedback. I think you need to be open-minded. And then the ability to adapt easily to any situation or work environment. I think the current crisis we're going through is a perfect example of that. Professionals, as well as all professionals and all employees, have had to adjust to these changing times, and we will have to continue to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, what what kind of advice would you have? I guess advice from the future. You could go back in time and give yourself some professional advice. What would it be? Not to get too complacent. 
I think when you get complacent, it may slow you down or prevent your career growth, or it might affect what you accomplish at work. When you outgrow a situation or a position, acknowledge that it's time to reassess and make any necessary changes. And I think that could apply to anything in life. You're always having that chocolate ice cream, but you haven't tried any other flavors, and there might be this amazing flavor out there that you haven't tried, and when you try it, it's the most amazing thing. I think that's something that's important to do, and... Um, Probably something that I would have given my own advice. Well, <laughs> I, in- Diana, I got to tell you, I'm not going to forget that for a variety of reasons. Number one, that's just great advice. But number two, you got me at ice cream. That is a, that is a great analogy. <laughs> <laughs> you start going there. That's ice cream is always good. My favorite. <laughs> Do you have a favorite flavor? Actually, I love chocolate, so I am a chocolate person. All right, good. Well, I'm going to recommend peppermint stick ice cream if you haven't tried it. Uh, (laughs) Outside of a family member, who's had the biggest impact on your career? Family members are usually the ones that have impact on your career. But in this case, I would say HR colleagues. Are you part of any networking groups or what what is it that, because you said colleagues, plural, just other people that you've worked with or just people you've met along the way? Yeah, it's a combination. I would say people that I have worked with in my positions, as well as other groups that I belong to. So I currently uh, am part of the HR panel, and uh, we do a lot of, our focus is to provide information uh, and best practices to human resources professionals in the nonprofit world. But working with your colleagues, specifically, you know, those that are in your field, I think is so important because you learn so much from each other. Whether you have an idea or you just want to bounce off something off someone, you want to also learn what other people are doing at similar organizations because you learn so much and you also want to find out if that's working or not because it gives you um, an open mind to perhaps try some of the things at your organization and vice versa. So the constant flow of information, sharing of information among HR professionals, um, I think is an important piece of it. And I'm always constantly doing that. I'm always reaching out to colleagues and they always have some impact because there may be an idea or suggestion that they provided to me that I have actually implemented and vice versa. I agree with you 100%. There's a quote on my email that I put that a smart man knows everything. A wise man knows everybody. Because if you have access to some of these yes. people, then you have access. <laughs> you know, then you will be able to get those, those answers. Having that ability to build those relationships to get that access is awesome. So- Speaking of quotes, we will end this podcast with a quote that I'd like to get your sentiments on. Okay, you ready? Okay, sure. All right. You don't change culture through emails and memos. You change it through relationships, one conversation at a time. Tell me, what does that quote if mean, if anything, to you? That first part where you don't change culture through emails and memos? Oh, no. Uh- <laughs> culture if you're not interacting with your employees. Emails and memos are good reminders, possibly about what the company's core values are, but you need to get to know your employees and what they are feeling is the culture of the organization. You'd be surprised about how employees feel about the company's culture. If you go around and ask each of your employees what they're feeling about the company culture, you may get different opinions and responses. I think for the companies that define culture well and live it in their day-to-day work, the responses may be pretty consistent, but if that is not the case, you may have different cultures going on within the organization. And sometimes you have 
different departmental cultures as well. So it's interesting because I have asked that question to employees and they will have different responses. So how do you actually determine what the culture is when everyone's feeling a different thing? That might be attributed to the fact that the establishment of a culture hasn't been fully discussed or looked into, but it's important to assess your current culture, see what employees are feeling before you take any steps to change it, because how can you change something you do not know what it is at the time? Engage your employees in that process, get their input, because I think all of the employees play a role in shaping a new culture that you want to create. And this can be done through meetings, but it also could be done through fun activities, even creating culture committee where people can bounce off ideas and the way they're feeling. And it's important to, you know, also be a part of that. So I think that's crucial. Gotcha. So a culture committee, like uh, in the office, you ever see the show, The Office? <laughs> They've got the party, oh, yes, yes, the party planning committee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had lots of committees. I've had many. Committees. Okay. Um, yeah. They're quite interesting, but I'm just using that as an example. It could be a culture committee that you call it a culture, because you could call it whatever you want. Uh, there's so many different types of committees. <laughs> okay, great. Diana, I re- thank you so much for sharing your insights and sharing your story. I appreciate you carving out some time to make today happen. So thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been a great opportunity because it has allowed me to reflect back on my journey in HR, which we often forget to do as HR professionals. And I think during these tough times, it's good to reflect back on your career, your accomplishments, and what you feel is important in your personal and business life. Thank you so much again. All right. It's been fun. Make it a great day. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.